Welcome to the HR Chat Podcast, bringing the best of the HR and talent communities to you. The contingent workforce industry represents over $4.5 trillion in annual spend globally. With double-digit percentages of waste every year, it is one of the largest spend optimization opportunities across the enterprise. Welcome to another episode of the HR Chat Podcast. Again, I'm your host, Bill Bannum, and in this episode, we'll be discussing the rise and rise of the contingent workforce and ways to help bigger businesses get it right. My guest this time is Hans Dell, CEO of the Mitchell Madison Group, also known as MMG, a global management consulting firm focused on improving financial and operating performances for large companies. Over his 25-year consulting career, Hans has served C-level executives of large public companies, private equity firms, and other public and private institutions. He has worked in North America, Europe, and Asia, with a focus on delivering creative solutions for complex issues and unlocking economic value for his clients and their stakeholders. Recently, MMG announced a partnership with Pro Unlimited, the modern workforce management solutions provider, and we're going to chat about what that means for the two firms and their customers in today's chat. Hans, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me, Bill. Appreciate the time. So beyond my wee introduction there, Hans, why don't you start by telling our listeners a bit more about yourself, your career background, and what you get up to at MMG? Sure. So I entered the uh, consulting industry straight out of the business school. I went to Dartmouth and, um, you know, basically took a job in uh, what became the Mitchell Madison Group uh, in 1992. Uh, A few years later, later after that, the company actually was formed as the Mitchell Madison Group. And then the company went through a series of growth spurts and acquisitions and, you know, various other things. And so uh, for the last, uh, since about 2008, I've been owning and operating the firm by myself. And it's a boutique consulting firm. We have partners. We have about 50 to 75 people. And we focus on operational performance improvement that is measurable in terms of its impact. So we do things like cost savings, revenue enhancement, anything you can measure, that's what we like to play. And because of that, we have increasingly done a large amount of work with the private equity industry, which is obviously very focused on earnings. In a moment, I'm going I'm to challenge you on um, sharing some insights in, in terms of some of the, the unique challenges to the HR department since, since the COVID outbreak in, in Q1 of 2020. 20. But before we get there, Hans, let's talk in more general terms. Maybe you can share with our listeners what you think the, the function of HR uh, means or uh, has changed as a result of certain challenges which impeded that space due to the outbreak of COVID. Yes. I mean, I, I think HR has been going through you know transitions and challenges uh, before COVID. And I think COVID accelerated and enabled, you know, rapid uh, behavior adoption. It's sort of almost like a forced adoption that happened, you know, that accelerated trends that were there and compressed maybe several years of changes into one year, right? So obviously everybody knows the key thing was this idea of remote work, right? Remote work is uh, became sort of the absolute necessary uh, mode of operation for knowledge workers, white-collar workers in general. 
And the technology existed, right? I mean, it existed. Um, there were, you know, the video technology existed. The management technology existed. People have been working remotely. There was some experience, but all of a sudden, everybody did it, right? And so I think that, you know, this prior experience, the, the idea of having fast internet access speed in every home, all that stuff really helped. And I could just, you know, you, you can, almost can't imagine if this happened 10 years ago, it would have been a very, very different story, right? So I think overall, the HR industry um, did really well managing this. I mean, you can, you can almost not use the word doing well with a crisis that killed so many people, and it's very sad. But I think given the, 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 the hand it was dealt, I think everybody did extremely well. Okay, and from what you've seen, from the conversations that you've had, what, what were some of the unique challenges that uh, face the HR department? So, you know, every department has had its issues over the course of the last 12 to 16 months, okay? Um, but from the conversations that I have with folk on a regular basis on this show and, and elsewhere, I, I do feel like the HR department has, has really been on the front lines for a lot of this. So, for example having to have difficult conversations with folk and then laying them off or furloughing them. Um, and coming out of the other side, as, as we are now, thank goodness, you know, looking for ways to to maintain their employer brand and, and look for, as we're going to be talking about shortly, um, more contingent workers. What have been some of those unique challenges just for the HR department? Yes, I think um, you have to differentiate between, you know, white collar and blue collar and you know, sort of the knowledge workers, right? So I, I'm going to focus myself on, on people that are able to work remotely. Obviously, the folks, the frontline workers, the people that required physical contact, they were really, really hurt, right, by, by Corona, by, by the COVID crisis. And uh, it's terrible. And of course, they will um exacerbating income inequality and all those kinds of things that will have very long-term impact but i'm going to focus on the on the white collar area here so i think from an hr point of view um the the recognition that physical presence is not necessary to do the work was obviously key and i don't think that hr departments um will go back to fully requiring everybody to be in the office all the time neither will they allow everybody to do whatever the hell they want. That's also not going to happen, right? So I think the, 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 the challenge is, has been and will continue to be, you know, what do we do now that we've determined that this, you know, remote work option is feasible? And what is a steady state solution that works for everybody? So I, I think that the cat on the back in terms of, you know, that being able to do that is acceptable to work from everywhere. There's no more complaints about the barking dog in the background. This is all fine. Um, so, so what are the challenges here, right? So challenges are how do you determine for particular jobs, particular segments of the population, preferences, work groups, what can you do? How far can you push it? So for example, you know, uh, there's some legal elements that lag behind, right? There's certain jobs that require local certifications and state specifically legal, legal certifications where you are, where it matters whether you're calling in from state A or state B or location A or location B, right? That's uh, a real concern. The other concern that I think has to be managed is that, you know, as, um, you know, managers have discovered that remote work is feasible, I think it will lead to another round of potentially disruptive outsourcing uh, trends, right? So once you figure out that you can do 
you know, you don't have to be in San Francisco to do a certain job. You can be in, you know, Salt Lake City or some other low cost location. It's just another step to do it in Asia, right? So I think that is a, is a real risk, if you want to call it that, that this thing will go in that direction as well. It, it could. Okay, so you mentioned a moment ago that the cat is out of the bag, to, to use your words, and um, people get that uh, folk can be just as productive working from home, even though there might be a, a dog barking, or in my case, a, a small child perhaps crying occasionally in the background. Um, not perfect, by the way, listeners, if you're recording a podcast, but I seem to be lucky right now. Um, but what, what about what about things that maybe will go back to pre-COVID times? What, what do you think might revert to, to the way we worked before. So, for example, I've, I've spoken with folk before who've said, yes, we are going to be seizing upon the, a, a wider global workforce and we will be picking up upon more um, contingent workers and, and using more gig workers. However, for our key leadership team, we still like the availability of, of having them meet in person with us you know, once or twice a, a, a month. So that might mean that they need to be fairly local. What, what are some of those things that you believe will revert back? Once, once we're back and we're through this. Yes, I actually see this, this whole development as extremely positive, right? Because it's all about productivity and choices, flexibility and options, right? So for the senior, senior executives have always traveled a lot and lived on airplanes, right? And, and, and lounges, and, you know, and this is not good for you, right? I mean, obviously there's a huge amount of time wasted and it is not going to be necessary for every meeting to hop on an airplane. You can now do this in other ways. So I think it's not, it's definitely going to be a hybrid solution that is optimal. And the hybrid, the nature of where, where you move the needle to will depend on circumstance, the type of the job, uh, the person, like I think, you know, sales, people that have a sale to make, an important sale, will obviously be on airplanes. They will show face-to-face. There's high bandwidth communications that need to occur in person, but it's not going to be the norm, right? And, and I mean, take, take for example, um, schooling. I just mentioned you have a child. So if you have a school-aged child, all the schools that have installed video camera and Zoom, Zoom school options will retain that, right? So now, you know, if you have a kid that has to go as a doctor's appointment, you can just for that day say, I'm going to Zoom school and I'm not going to drive all over town rushing from school to doctor's appointment and traffic and all this stuff, and you're saving hours and hours of productivity, right? So I think these productivity gains in the white collar knowledge workforce are, are really going to be very, very significant. Again, they will accrue largely to the higher end workforce and which will lead to macroeconomic policy uh, challenges regarding income inequality and so forth. That will all get actually more extreme, I think, as a result of this. But then I think there's also um, uh, sort of second order effects that we don't really fully understand yet. So for example, uh, health insurance, right? That's very interesting. And we can, we can get a little bit into this when we talk about the poor and limited partnership, but it's pretty obvious that, you know, pay rates and cost and the wages and salaries that, that are, you know, required to attract a certain job. Those are given, right? So you can only pay people within a narrow range. So the degrees of freedom that you might have on, on managing the economics of a workforce really have to do with benefits, right? And now that you are in a, a good chunk of your workforce is able to live wherever they want, to some extent at least, 
you have to take this into account, right? You no longer are going to negotiate health insurance for a particular location. You're going to negotiate it, you know, nationwide or multi-locational, which has some very interesting implications around different costs of providing services, which we know are vast, right? But also has really interesting second order implications around people um, essentially signaling their own lifestyle health choices based on where they live, which will affect healthcare utilization. So very potentially a very explosive subject, by the way, right? Because it has to do with with uh, confidentiality and so forth. But th those are all things that I think will happen as a result of this dispersion of the workforce. There are so many things you brought up in that last answer. I feel like there could be another two or three podcast interviews on the back of just that one answer. But let's continue through for today. Um, talk to me a bit more about the, the the rise of contingent and geek workers. In your opinion, what, what was it really accelerated by COVID or was that upward curve going to happen anyway? I mean, it seems like over the last five years, there's been an, a natural rise in in global nomads and gig workers and folk who are who are augmenting other workforces so it was inevitable in a way wasn't it i i think uh it was inevitable anyway i think this is a trend and like i said earlier maybe COVID accelerated that trend and made it more acceptable for employers and employees to to work in this mode right and i think it's also increasing the the labor pool that would even apply to these jobs right um, I think that um, the, the, contingent, the contingent workforce, it depends a little bit. I mean, you mentioned global numbers, but it really is, there's an obviously a legal element in every country. It has to do with, you know, how long you're considered, you know, can't work for longer than a year or, you know, there's different restrictions, what makes you contingent. And that's always going to be an issue. But I, I would even go a little bit broader than that, right? If, if you look at, you know, the, the traditional, you know, long-term employee, then you look at a, a temp, right, continued workforce, but then you also have, you know, statement of work type contractors, you know, IT contractors, consultants, and, um, you know, professional services. And if you look at, in my experience at least, you look at large Fortune 500 companies, it is not unusual to have professional services providers like the management consultant or the auditor or, you know, external lawyers have a far longer tenure than the C-suite, right? The C-suite might turn around in three to five years and you have a McKinsey consultant who's been there for 10. That's not unusual, right? So this, this whole differentiation between the different labels we attach to the, the workforce that is performing the work in organization is somewhat arbitrary. And I think what's really interesting about this trend is that we have to come to a uh, much more of a cohesive understanding of who manages what. I find it a bit artificial that, um, you know, um, HR is managing, you know, W-2 payroll employees where there can be in, a, say, a pharma company, there can be contingent workers that are contractors that have PhDs and are involved in drug trials, right? There's no difference, but one is managed by the procurement department and one is managed by HR. And that is somewhat artificial. And I think that a lot of innovation has to occur to, you know, decide, you know, what should be in what bucket and what it really means. I think that's, that's sort of, I would view it as a challenge of comprehensive HR management. 
Okay, let's let's mix up the rhythm of this interview today now, Hans. And um, I'm going to challenge you to answer in 60 seconds or less. Okay. Okay. Um, in, <laughs> okay. Um, in, in, in your opinion, what, what are the potential benefits and negatives to a large company that this interview today is very much focused on on larger organizations when they augment their workforce with contingent workers in a big way? Uh, I think the, the problem is you have less loyalty, right? You're not going to have institutional knowledge, the obvious things. Um, and there's also the cost can be higher if it's not managed well. Sometimes you get hit with pass-through expenses, you know, that are not really managed. You know, you have uh, potentially higher pay rates, but you have the flexibility. I think it's a trade-off. Um, I, I would say the biggest benefit of having your own workforce is obviously the knowledge retention, the long-term nature of the workforce. No oh, man, that was like that was like forty seconds. You're all over that. Okay, um, now then, let's get into the, this recent news about your your partnership plans. Um, Pro Limited listeners, it, it's a workforce management solutions provider, and the, the partnership will broaden Pro's contingent workforce management platform, provide its software, data, and services to MMG's clients, as well as provide combined strategic sourcing, higher intelligence, and contingent labor solutions. To the to the global two thousand. How do you plan to provide com combined strategic sourcing, hiring intelligence, and and those contingent labor solutions to to the global two thousand? Well, what's the plan there? How are you going to roll it out? What can your customers expect? And those people who perhaps aren't your customers yet, but they'll be working with you before they know it. Yeah, no, we're very excited about this partnership. So, so first of all, we're typically quite uh, cautious doing any kind of alliances with potential vendors right or suppliers to our own customer base because we're you know we do a big uh, business in strategic sourcing where we negotiate with suppliers on behalf of our customers and so this is typically not what we do but pro is a bit of a unique case in the sense that they are a vendor neutral workforce management platform right and they're in the market all the time they're large they have the data uh, that is required around, you know, pay rates and job descriptions and, and so forth. So analytically, what Mitchell Mattis can do without being in the market all the time would be a little bit like, you know, being a, a bond trader, well, the Bloomberg terminal, right? So we, we need to have that information. We need to have that knowledge. And it's impossible to replicate that from our point of view, being an episodic provider of consulting services. So that's obviously what's in it for us. From a pro point of view, it gets a little bit into what I mentioned before, right? So they're wondering, you know, what is the difference between a contingent labor person or a temp, you know, ranging from some low-end job to a very high-end job, and an SOW, statement of work type contractor that is doing very similar things and is responsible for outcomes. So the idea that pro should manage only people that are paid on a cost plus basis, right? Which is the hourly rate plus markups. When, when, and you change the pricing basis to more outcome based, that is really artificial. And so that's our expertise, right? So Mitchell Madison is really, really good at designing uh, a contract and pricing schema that incentivize, you know, efficient outcomes and high productivity. So when uh, so what we're going to be doing with Pro is to dive deeply into the more complex areas 
for the existing clients, figuring out how to, you know, source SOW-based uh, IT contractors, consultants, uh, lawyers, you know, all, all the much more high-end stuff that you wouldn't typically associate with uh, temporary services. How can, how can our listeners learn more about you? So how can they connect with you personally, Hans, whether that's through LinkedIn or perhaps you'd like to share your email? And also, how can they learn more about all the awesome things happening over at the Mitchell Madison Group? Well, so uh, I did buy the book over COVID. It's on Amazon. It's called Strategic Sourcing, Theory and Practice. It's a, it's a fairly, <clears throat> it's, an, it's sort of based on microeconomics, uh, but it's also very practical. So anybody wants to learn about that, uh, more than welcome to get that. Uh, the website is mmgmc.com. Uh, there's information there and there's some you know, articles published. But I think, um, you know, the, the, the most interesting thing for us, to, for, for people to keep in mind, and I think I'm assuming your listeners are HR folks, but generally business people, the, the area of purchasing and strategic sourcing is, even though we've worked in this space for 20 plus years, still an extremely under-leveraged uh, area to get cost savings and performance improvement. You can always negotiate a better deal as long as you go out there and ask for it and invest the time and the analytics into getting a really great deal. And nothing is beyond negotiation. People often shy away from this and you know, think that, oh my God, you know, I can't touch high-end lawyers, I can't touch IT. The reality is you can negotiate anything, health insurance, anything you want. You just have to be analytical about that. Wonderful. Well, as soon as this interview is over, I am straight down to my local corner store to see if I can negotiate for a pint of milk. Um, but that just leaves me to say for today, Hans, this episode of the HR Chat Show. Thank you so much and good luck with negotiating your milk. <laughs> <laughs> and listeners, as always, until next time, happy working and please do continue to stay safe. Thank you for listening to the HR Chat Podcast, brought to you by the HR Gazette. 